Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special. That's right, still special. Still every Sunday, but still special. Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, the straw man himself, the man from strawman.com, because I didn't give you enough plugs on Strawman at the beginning of last podcast. I didn't mention Strawman. So now I'm going to mention Strawman, strawman.com. Andrew Page, how are you, buddy? <laughs> I'm very good, mate. You can keep saying that as, for as long as you like. No complaints here. <laughs> I, I, just, I felt bad when I got to the end of it, went to wrap it up, went, I didn't even say where Andrew was from. I got completely That's sidetracked cool. with whatever I was. I think I riffed on your nickname on, on Friday and completely lost track of everything <laughs> else. So, mate, but there, there's, there's the makeup. There's the makeup. All good. good. Strawman.com. All right. Mate, uh, we got a full mailbag, which is always exciting. We always do because yes. our listeners are one. We have the best listeners in the business, can I say? They are, they are, yeah, they're course. smart, handsome, uh, attractive, funny, uh, good-looking, discerning, obviously. The great listeners are the best, best <laughs> listeners in the business. Um, if, in fact, you suck, you suck share, up. <laughs> oh, mate, I'm a total suck. Flattery will get you everywhere, they reckon. As long as that's true, we should be okay after that. Um, the reason... <laughs> The reason I, I will um, start with that is just to share something. Um, and speaking of uh, speaking of best um, best fans, best listeners, best whatever, uh, we got a, a message from Andrew during the week. He said, my, my name is Andrew. I'm a classical pianist. I'm a regular podcast listener and an Extreme Opportunities subscriber. On a recent podcast, I mentioned I lived in the Southern Highlands. I did. Uh, he lives in Bundanoon and spent most of his childhood there, which is good. I can also attest to what a beautiful part of the world the Southern Highlands is. He says, I'm writing for two reasons. Firstly, to thank you for all of your foolishness. After combing the full website for hours and subscribing to the EO service, I began investing last year. Your invaluable advice has paid dividends, pun intended, and I can't thank you enough for all that you and the Motley Fool team do. Your podcasts make my commute to Sydney enjoyable, and I always like to read your genuine advice that periodically appears in my email inbox. That's from Andrew. Come Thank on, you, mate. Andrew. It's very come on, very mate. Kind was that was that was that uh, a real one, or is that like really from your mum or something? That was that was oh, very mate, flattering. There, there is one from there's one from my member of the Page family coming up. Don't worry about that. I'll, I'll <laughs> okay. just hold, hold your horses on that one. <laughs> All right, but th- okay. Andrew. Thank thank you for the uh, thank you for the message, Andrew. Really really appreciate it. Thanks. All right, let's um, let's move on uh, to to another one. An actual question this time. Actually, no. Speaking of, speaking of best listeners, this is this is the other reason we have the best listeners in the business. Remember last week you gave your top five stocks. Oh yeah. He said, so Scott, what were yours? I went, oh, I don't remember. So Dane, <laughs> thank you to Dane who jumped straight on the Twitter machine and let me well know. Done. Uh, so this was this was Sunday at three twenty one PM. So Dane has literally listened a couple of hours after it dropped, jumped on the Twitter machine and said, Look, I better I better help Scott out here. He's he's obviously all at sea. And Dane reminds me that my stock recommendations were and these were in alphabetical order, Amazon, Australian Ethical, Kogan, Mercado Libre, Treasury Wine Estates. And Shopify, so there you go. Um, he's uh, he's having. The, and by the way, I, I will, I, for full disclosure, I own all of those stocks. Uh, it was a running joke for quite a long time that I kept on at Mercado Libre and Shopify, and never quite get around to buy them. Since that podcast, I did remedy that mistake, uh, and I have finally bought <laughs> well those done. stocks. So for full disclosure, I own all those stocks. And again, another reason, mate, we have the best listeners in the business. Dane, thank you very I knew, much. I knew you were going to mention. I knew you were going to mention Kogan too. By the way, I was, I was yeah, waiting for that one to come up. I, I, well, mate, I've only we been doing this for like three weeks or so, and I think you've mentioned Kogan like twenty times in that, <laughs> in that space of time. So I'd, I'd be the, surprised if right it wasn't there. That's about the right ratio. I didn't mention it on Friday, did I? Oh, we'll make up for it in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question from Matt. This is this is great. Um, so he's got a question, but also makes a comment. Hey, Scott, I was going to ask you a question for the podcast about how you and Andrew approach estimating valuations, and came across this article. Thought you might have a laugh about it on the podcast. I don't know if you saw this article, mate. It's one in CNBC, and the headline says 
There's a single New Jersey deli doing $35,000 in sales and valued at $100 million on the stock market. Did you see that article? I, I did hear about it, yeah. Makes it's perfect uh, sense, doesn't it? <laughs> 2021, y'all. Oh, YOLO, hey? Um, yeah. Hashtag something, hashtag something. It's, uh, yeah, 35 grand in sales, $100 million in the stock. That's a, that's a fair valuation. Um, yeah, sometimes you hear, it, like, the other one you sometimes hear is, like, a, a massive uh, power plant going for $1 or, or something like that. Yeah, that's so right, that's the, right. There must be something to this deal. It must be the land or some sort of contract or something, right? There's going to be something yeah. else to it. Yeah, or, or maybe there was like there was some non-cash accounting adjustment. You know, maybe normally they right, make four hundred yeah, yeah. million. I mean, this I'm I'm trying to be generous here. This is a deli after all. <laughs> it's got to be something. Maybe it's completely nuts. Yeah, I, I think one of those things I I've learned the hard way is that um, you you need to take things seriously at least at first because sometimes <laughs> yeah right sometimes it can make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that that does seem a bit crazy. And it, it, actually, it's make, you're making your point, mate. Particularly in this in this land, this world, this time, this age of kind of that whole snarky Twitter, everything's rubbish, everything's funny, haha, they're all stupid. I think it's a good point actually to actually actually start with. There's probably a good reason. Let's find that rather than just laughing it off as a as a funny headline, ha ha ha, stupid market, then move on. Right? There's often something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's often yeah. something behind it. I like that. Well, I mean, it could entirely be a stupid reason. I'm just saying that it's not. You know, some, the it world can be, be a surprising place. All right. Now, Matt did ask a question and he follows up with, uh, with the question itself. Is it on a serious note though, you guys mentioned valuation a lot in last week's mailbag edition when answering a question about when to sell. And I'd love to think about how you work it out on a basic level. Love having Andrew back, he says. Oh, he's obviously, obviously a relative of yours. I have been listening Thanks, since all the way back in the early days and you two have great chemistry. Which I thought was nice. <laughs> I'm also now this uncomfortable, perfect match kind of vibe going on, which I'm going to try and move past. <laughs> move because, past. Because um, if Dexter has a compatibility rating, Matt, we're all in trouble. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's move on. Um, but to Matt's question, we talk a lot. We did talk a lot about selling, and we kind of talk about being, you know, slow to buy and slower to sell, and kind of that general stuff. But Matt's kind of like, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. But how do you actually work out? when the right time is to sell. So I'm just going to ask you that as a broad question. I don't know how much more uh, value you want to add to the conversation we had last time, but can you kind of distill it down any further to actually like what what criteria would you use to say how much is too much to hang on to those shares? Yeah, man, it's such a big question. So I'd approach it, I'd approach it, I, I, okay, here, here's, a, here's perhaps a long bow. I'll, I'll compare it to say health and fitness. So we all know we could probably be a bit more active and maybe eat the better foods. And... If we were to do that, it would probably have a really strong uh, impact on our on our lives. Or we could get super serious, go to the gym every day, only eat tin <laughs> tuna. You know what I mean? And just take it to the nth degree. And unquestionably, we will be fitter, stronger, healthier. Yeah. Um, but but you get so much of the value in in the first part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, it's a long bo- a long bow, as I said. But I think it's the same with valuation. Long, we okay. we could we could very easily jump into the deep end and start talking about discounted cash flows and costs of mm-hmm. money and all, all mm-hmm. of these kinds of things. And it, and it, yep. it, there's a lot of value to be had in that. I'm very mindful in this forum. It's going to be really painful to sort of try verbalize all, all of that. So I would say this. Let me paint you a I picture would, of a complex algebraic equation. Some graphs. It's yeah, it's really tough. I just think, 
And, and then the other thing that you need to be aware of too is that there's a whole bunch of different ideologies slash philosophies out there in, in mm -hmm. how you approach this. There's no mm -hmm. sort of one agreed upon sort of way. I've, I've certainly got strong opinions on that, but but other people will be listening and, and they approach it a, a very different way. But whatever way that you do approach it, I think it's just worth trying to just just thinking about it, I think has, mm -hmm. has a huge amount of value. I mean, too many people, pretty much all people, particularly who are new to investing, just buy on this, I don't know, this unquantified faith that it will just go up because mm -hmm. there's a positive story there or, or something like that. But I think you, you need to find a way that ties it back to business performance, not to sound corny, mm -hmm. but a share is just a part of a business. It, it needs to have some semblance to that. So that might just be a simple multiple of earnings, like the PE or a multiple of sales or mm -hmm. a free cash flow. It might be something that's just purely based on yield if it's a reliable dividend payer. Or again, you can go right up to the D DTF and discounted cash flow uh, approach. But whatever approach you do take, you think through that and you think more in terms of what is the business likely to do. Mm -hmm. And then as a secondary question, what is a reasonable expectation for the market to pay for that? So there's there's just there's a there's there's so many assumptions built into the to the process that are unavoidable. You have this this really tenacious problem in garbage in garbage out. So yeah. you can come up with any valuation if you come up with mm. any kind of you know with 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 different assumptions and and your assumptions are always going to be wrong. So so another thing I like to try and do is I try and keep it general. So I'm basically looking first at the quality and endurability of uh, in, uh, yeah. of the company. Um, and then I'm starting to get a flavor of the kind of growth that it's experiencing. And I, and I want to pay a multiple of that that isn't reliant on the market being in a euphoric or positive mood <laughs> years down the track. Like if that happens, and that does, it's really nice when the market gets carried away with, with something that you own. But I want, I want it to be dependent on the business delivering what I think it's mm. possible to, to do. And so, like, you, you'll come up with a value. Maybe it's two dollars forty-eight or something like, you know, something like that. That doesn't mean that at two forty-seven it's a screaming buy, and at two sixty you, you get the hell out of there. But it just mm. gives you an anchor point that's a far more useful anchor point than what where the price has been over the last few weeks. So there's a lot to unpack in all of that, and I realize I'm, I'm just crapping on at this point. But yeah, that's that's broadly how I think about it. Yeah, no, I like that, mate. I'm gonna I'm gonna take two those those two. Um Concepts of, of the business quality and the valuation or the, or the price and try and describe a little bit about how I think about it. In the same broad terms as you, I think we both agree that the kind of, you know, unnecessary, unrealistic specificity, as Kevin Rudd would like to say, uh, programmatic specificity in Kevin Rudd's case. Why would yeah. I call it programmatic specificity? Well, I'm glad you asked. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, the, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, worth, it's worth thinking that through. The... So at a, at a at a business quality level, to your point, I think that's right. I think the the more confidence I have in both the business quality and the potential for growth, the more room I'm going to let it run. Because we know, I mean, we talked about on Friday some of the tech companies who are multi, 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 multi tens of billions of dollars worth of value and still growing at 19, 25, 48%. Mm. And so, you know, given, I, I literally just said it, to start with I'm, I'm slow to buy and slower to sell the very very idea of like letting a quality business do its thing and giving it room mm -hmm. I think is really important because as you say we're going to be wrong anyway and generally speaking if you back quality you're going to do okay um, yep. of course you can be more accurate and less accurate but generally speaking that's a good starting point valuation yep. wise um, one of my one of my lines I know you like is um, it, you know growth can cover a whole lot of valuation sins and so it's to that true. extent if you got that growth you can make it work from a but but if you don't have that growth, then you need to get valuation even more right. One of the more recent recommendations we recommended members sell at ShareAdvisor, the service I run, 
um, it was Telstra. Now, I still own Telstra shares because it's recommended another service. There's a whole lot of complex reasons. I've gone into that before. I won't do it again. Um, suffice it to say, I still own it, even though we've recommended it be sold. And I want to put that because I'm going to explain why we think we should sell it, even though I haven't, um, which is, you know, <laughs> a mouthful. So uh, very, very quickly, in case you've just joined, you laugh, so I should, I should explain it. Our, the Motley Fool trading policy is that uh, we can't act against formal recommendations. I run two services. One is Share Advisor, uh, where we try and beat the market. The other is Everlasting Income, where we try and generate tax-effective income from a portfolio. I don't think it's going to beat the market, so we sold it from Share Advisor. I still think it's a great part of an income portfolio, so we left it in Everlasting Income. And because it's still a buy recommendation formally in that service, I, ha- I haven't sold my shares. So it's it's a buy and one to sell the other for different reasons. The thesis are different, um, but that's why I still hold my shares. There you go. Makes sense. The uh, thank you, mate. Back the, to valuation. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. Well, that's uh, so in Telstra's case, right? The question the question is really: Look, the market's going to grow about nine percent a year, give or take. Yeah, I think it's a reasonable assumption. If you want to invest in individual shares, you want to at least beat the market, right? Otherwise, buy an ETF. So that's there's your starting point. Your bogey is ten percent ish, at least for me, it is. I don't do a lot of discounted cash flows to your point, Andrew, but I do I do the reverse sometimes and say, what would have to happen for this to beat the market? So if you're Telstra, you either have to deliver profit growth and dividends that total 10% a year to beat the market, or you have to hope for a PE expansion that increases the price despite those other two things not happening. Mm. And so that's really that's really your math. So to, to Matt who asked the question, if we're not going to get enough growth and enough dividends to, to catch up, say, say ahead of the market, you need PE expansion because you need people to say, well, okay, profits are the same. I'm going to pay more for that profit, i.e. PE goes up and the share price therefore goes up. If, if earnings are the same, PE goes up, the share price goes up. So you're either hoping for a PE expansion or earnings growth, ideally both. But with Telstra, I went, well, look, here's the thing. It's been flat-ish for years. The dividend yield now is 5-ish percent, which is fine. If you're looking for income only, you don't mind not beating the market, it's fine. Hence the everlasting income recommendation. But do I really think the P is going to expand continuously to, to make up for the lack of profit growth? No, I don't. Okay. In that case, for a business that's not going to grow fast, not going to grow its PE, makes it very hard for it to beat the market. And if that's to my true, own point, then I should tell. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I was just going to say, and to my point, whether it, it can or can't happen, you just don't want to be beholden or reliant on the market for that to happen. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It's just it's just another another. Thing you've uh, that has to go your way, where it's 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 far better that well, with even without multiple expansion, it still makes sense. And mm. then hey, if I get some, that's an added bonus. Yeah. So I think I think you know that's the that that that's the that's the Telstra version that the valuation. A lot slow growing business easy to easier to work on valuation. A faster growing business, you're really looking at quality and how much growth is left and whether you can do that growth. So you know the. The Amazon doubters, for you, I've been an Amazon shareholder for years, the Amazon doubters early on said, it's not making any money. How can you possibly pay this much for it? The answer was because I think, looking at the business, it has a very, very, very long runway and a very, very, very large market opportunity and a business and management team and culture that I think is going to give it a good chance of doing that. And again, was I yeah. sure? No, but I'm never sure with any recommendation. So I went, okay. And by the way, Telstra's, Amazon's are much better than Telstra. So you're going, well, I could, I could predict Telstra's future with confidence, <laughs> Amazon's with less confidence, but the raw upside for Amazon was much better than Telstra. And so it's a, a smarter bet, even though it's less certain. Sometimes being certain of a terrible outcome is not a great reason to buy stocks, right? You want to buy stocks when you get a, you know, an uncertain chance of a very good outcome, which is the Amazon story. And so that's in that basically, case- That's basically my oh. Bitcoin argument, not, not to segue into a completely different oh, tangent. But yes, go. but I hear you. I hear, I hear what you're saying. 
Except risk, that risk, real risk. and cash flows and customers and bitcoins are just a figment <laughs> yeah. of digital imagination. But that's fine. Oh, sure. That's fine. I should, I should other have, than that, exactly the same. I shouldn't have said anything. All I'm, just, I'm just emphasizing. I'm emphasizing your point that it's a risk reward thing. One's yes, much, exactly. much, much lower risk, but there's much lower reward on offer. One's one's right, higher exactly. risk. And, yeah. right. at, a, at a point when the upside's big enough, the risk yes. is worth it. The, the continuum is between cash under the pillow and a lotto ticket for all yeah. of these things, right? And so our job That's is just to say, yeah, yeah that, where exactly, do you want to sit? And our job is to say, well, yeah, and and literally the spectrum in the sense that the cash under the pillow can also be stolen. So the risk is still yeah. minus one hundred percent. To plus infinity, mm. and mm. and you're just looking at that, going, okay, well, what what risk do I take, and what return am I looking for? And there is no easy answer. Diversification, by the way, and understanding the the, the without going to more algebra, adding together probabilities. So, mm. if you've got five companies with a hundred to one chance, it's a really bad investment. If you've got a hundred companies with a hundred to one chance, okay, you, the math start to work out a little bit because you're going to probably get a payback on one of those. If the odds are right, you'll get your money back. So it's mm. all it's all that stuff all added together, right? So it's the number of tosses of the metaphorical coin all that kind of stuff as well as the odds and everything else uh, yeah. so Probab- prob- it- probabilistic thinking is really handy when it comes to valuations i think and it's also it's also worth saying you don't need a valuation you can have yeah. a range and and they're not that the the these things that you're saying this is what it's absolutely worth it's sort of like yeah. look Here's various scenarios, fast growth, slow growth, a stumble, a fail, whatever. And th- yep. this is what a sensible valuation would look like under those conditions. Where, where, and, then, and then where on a balance of probabilities do I, I see the trajectory going? Which, yep. which comes around to the other point, which was, well, when do you sell? And, and, and that, that's a nice segue, really, because well, when you sell is when that, when that uh, underpinning of your investment case, when that thesis is broken. So not yep. because the share price has gone up or down or anything's happened on that front, but because your whole rationale for, for purchasing, your assumptions that you built into it from the get-go are just demonstrably wrong. It doesn't mean you right. can't dust yourself off and start again and, and form, formulate a new one or, or compare it with other alternatives, but that's the point at which you, uh, you, you come at it anew. Yeah, a couple of quick examples, right? Now, this is, this is my greatest sin of omission thus far. I didn't buy Afterpay. In fact, I sold on the behalf of Motley Fool Million Dollar Portfolio, Touch Corp, the business that Afterpay was merged into. Oof before it was merged, right? Aren't, aren't the they more painful was... than any losses? Just just quickly. Say again, sorry. For you, I, I, I don't know about if this is the case for you, but for me, I yep. find those experiences far more emotionally taxing than a loss. Oh, do you know like, what? I don't. I've not, I've not lost you? a second sleep over it. No, not. And so here's why oh, though. So here's why. I do. Because the, 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 well, you, you mentioned theses, right? The reason I want to bring this one up is because my thesis on TouchCorp was it's a tech company enabling point of sale systems across Europe. Which mm. was what it was, right? It happened out no, of a dime a dozen made. at the time. <laughs> well, not only that, but it, yeah. was, it was fine. It was just like it was what it was, right? And mm. and when we like we bought it for that reason, we liked it, and that was all fine. This thing called Afterpay was a customer of Touch Corps at one point, using some of its tech, and it was going to become this merged business. And we're like, we have no thesis on Afterpay. Now mm. hindsight says, you know, should we have been able to think of something? Probably. But this is real. This is before I even started to get traction. Right? It was like, hey, mm. here's this thing. Buy now, pay later didn't exist. It was an idea. Again, if we bought it and just held the shares, we would have been squillionaires, right? But at the time, I, I have no problem selling it. I probably should have bought it back at some point after the merger when we saw Afterpay continuing to do well. So there is a, there, that's the one I'm, I'm not, I'm not upset about selling TouchCorp. I, I, I'm, if anything, disappointed that I didn't, I didn't see the opportunity as it started to grow in front of my eyes. But the, the selling of TouchCorp was the thesis changed. This is no longer yeah. the business we bought. We don't have st- enough confidence in this new idea called buy now, pay later, which might be something or nothing. Who knows? So we sold the stock. No problem with that at all. So that's the thesis thing. Uh, speaking of which, on Apple, I think this is a good example of your um, changing valuation, right? Apple for a while was 
uh, growing it spectacularly quickly. Then there was the handset replacement concern. And at that point, it was very reasonable for someone to have a thesis to say, which my, my view at the time was, what will happen when we all have phones and the replacement cycle will start to lengthen because the new phones are no different to the old ones. You know, the features aren't that different. At some point, everyone's got a phone who wants one and they're going to replace them when they break or when they're worth replacing. And that's going to go from every two years to every five years because the new ones aren't that exciting. So why would you bother? Mm. And that was, that was a reasonable thesis. At some point, Apple turned into a fashion item. Everyone wanted the latest device. And by the way, Apple's business started to become more and more um, reliant on the ecosystem, which is the apps and the uh, iTunes store and the watches and stuff that went with it. And so there's obviously yeah. more legs of the Apple growth story. And so you, it's, again, to your point of changing things, it's okay at some point to say, I don't see a bright future for Apple because I don't see the handset sales growth continuing. This is going to become a replacement cycle, no growth business. Cool. That was, that was a reasonable assumption at some point. Subsequently, you had to look at it again and say, as you say, hey, things have changed. I need a new thesis on this one. And that's a reasonable time to say, now I need to value it differently because there is another growth kind of jump, uh, another growth driver, which could play out for another 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I need to work out what that's worth as well and add that into the investment story. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, man, there's so much more to say. Like, although technically we're meant to be answering <laughs> mailbag questions here. But... Uh, yeah, well, well, I think one thing. We say technically, I think that's actually what we are supposed to be doing. I see. Sure. Yeah, so it's, there's just too many <laughs> possible. There's a too many interesting <laughs> tangents to sort of yeah, right. Into stuff. And this is the thing with investing: when you start pulling on these things, it's just so damn fascinating because there's mm, mm. they're all interesting and it takes you in very different directions. But um, I, I, I would say uh, one of one of the the best skills you can have as an investor is to have that fluidity of mind, if I could put it that yeah. way, where yeah. it is. We, we, I still have opinions on stocks that were formed years ago, and I just haven't looked at them for a long time. And I'm completely un, I'm just, I'm, I'm baggaged by those kinds of things. I think mm, the really great what? investors, just, I was mentioned to um, someone mm. the other day actually, that when if I've if I've ever bought something and then sold it, whether at a profit or a loss, I find it very hard to sort of go back and look at it again. I feel as though mm. that that was an opportunity that was executed on well or poorly, but either way, okay, on to the next thing. And you kind of think, well, no, it's still an opportunity potentially. And you've invested a lot of time and, and, and effort in, into that. So it, it, it's kind of, there is a real skill to be able to almost start afresh each day. A new piece of information comes, that thesis is out the window, but hey, I can reformulate it. And, and to be willing to admit you're wrong and, and being egotistically comfortable with that is such a huge thing because you just have to be. It's a very complex world. Things change very quickly. Or even when things don't change, your understanding of those things can change. And so you need to... And, and here's the other thing. Remember, you can always buy back in. If, if when in doubt, get out isn't in, entirely a terrible saying. Like even for long-term investors, if you've if you've lost faith in the initial conviction and, and thesis for something, there's nothing wrong with. Yes, there might be tax issues there, and yes, there are transaction costs. But you can then evaluate it, um, you know, away from the cut and thrust of the market mm. in the cool light of day, um, and. And yeah, mm. potentially you might miss out on a tiny bit of upside while you're sort of lamenting and thinking about things. But mm. at least you're coming, at least you're putting yourself, I think, in a better uh, position to make more objective decisions, and um, and to, and then to re-answer re the fray with with much higher conviction. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, yeah, let's let's move on. I think I think the only thing I would say is you know, the last last point on on valuation versus growth is just. The comment we've made many times before around the human mind's inability to easily grasp the idea of exponential growth. Mm. So 
Amazon was a great investment because it grew at 20% plus for years. And it's not 20 plus 20 plus 20. It's 1.2 times 1.2 times 1.2. And that number gets really, really big, really, really fast. And I think that's the Well, you double your of- money every three or so years, right? Correct, exactly. And so, and only, again, you double it, but then you double for, again. So one to two to four to eight to sixteen, and that's mm. when you can see as you double. If you get if you get five doubles in a row, you're right. It's every three years, which is stupid fast, but also the numbers get really big, really fast because yeah. of the way that exponential kind of curve, you know, shakes out. So yeah. it's one of those. It, it is one of those um, things. Just worth reminding, remembering, right? And and in that case, honestly. I know I was asking when to sell. I guess I'm, I'm answering when not to sell, and that's probably just the you know if you're getting if you if that sort of growth is possible or probable, then you really want to sell really slowly on that one because if you just let it play out, maybe you're wrong and that's fine. We all make loss. I've I, I mentioned at one company I've done about ninety one percent on share advisor one. Um, mm. You know it, I make lots of mistakes, but if you can get a few of those right and they do have those, those exponential growth kind of characteristics, it really can make a huge difference. And so um, we, we spend a lot of time on when should I sell. I will go back to rarely because if you're, if you're right with the sell, then you might save yourself a few bucks. If you're wrong with the sell in terms of you're wrong because you sell too early, it's probably going to cost you more than being right would make you. Um, and I don't want to, that sound flippant, but if you've done the work, that's why I say slow to buy and slower to sell. If you bought the right companies, then you kind of you know you want you want to you want to spend ninety five percent of your time thinking about what to buy, and ninety five percent thinking about what to sell. Ideally, if you have the opportunity. Mm. Mm. All right, let's move on, mate. Yep. You're right. We have spent a lot of time on that one. <laughs> uh, question from uh, from Steve. So he says, "I love what you guys do. Thank you, mate. And it keeps me entertained and informed whilst I work on garden maintenance. Awesome. I'm fifty seven. He says, and despite a few stops and starts throughout my life." I've only been seriously investing since February 2018. That's a hell of a three, isn't it, Ram? <laughs> the market's done a few, a few scary and exciting things through there. All yeah, right. Yeah. Steve, Steve says, I've got about 270 grand invested, depending on the time of day, mainly focused on growth shares, but with a few ETFs thrown in and some dividend shares. Yes, it's a mixed bag, he says. Which brings me to my question. Despite my portfolio being market beating last year, I can see with all the volatility of my growth shares and my age that I may not have enough time to benefit from the miracle of compounding before I need to access the cash for retirement, holidays, etc. Should I now temper my enthusiasm for growth shares and identify as another type of investor to achieve my goal of accessing the cash in the next five years? I guess I'm still working out what sort of investor I am, says Steve. Have I just started too late? This is in brackets. I've already set my kids up with investing accounts and ETFs in Comsec. Cheers, Steve. Which well, see, firstly, mate, great work for setting your kids up with the, the comps that can't get them started. Well done, mate. Uh, paying it forward is the best thing we can do and that's kind of why we do this podcast a little bit. Yeah, Andrew and I get some, some business value, some brand value out of uh, from both, both the Motley Fool and for Strawman. But, um, you know, honestly, the, the passion here is about helping our listeners, um, other investors. I had a, some really nice feedback the other day, mate, by the way. A bit of a, I'll, I'll give myself a wrap here. A lady stopped me literally. I was at a trolley waiting at a, a lift and she said, you're that guy on TV, aren't you? I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. She said, my daughter loves you. She trusts you. Keep it up. I thought, you know what? That's that's kind of, you know, we, we do electronic. That's electronic, nice. It, it, electronic advice is kind of great, but it's lots of like talking out into the ether and hoping that someone's at the other end listing. So it's always nice. So Steve, well done, mate, for, for paying it forward for your kids. It's cool. Um, Steve, it's, here's, the, here's the challenge for your situation. The question really isn't so much when you'll need the cash, but how much cash you'll need when which I know sounds like sort of the same thing, but it's not. See, you're 57 now. Mathematically, by the time you've made it to 60, you're probably going to live to 85. 
So you've actually got a 28 plus year horizon for your investing from this point forward. So then I, I would encourage you to think not about retirement in X years time, but about the end of your life in hopefully many, many years, hopefully th- three decades and more um, before you step off this mortal coil. And the value, we just talked about exponential and compounding um, over, over that period of time. It kind of depends on how much of that cash you'll need and when. If you have a view that you need to sell your entire portfolio at 60 and do something with it, then yeah, you've absolutely got a three-year time horizon. If you're saying, look, I want to take out, I'm going to make numbers up here, 10 grand a year for the rest of my life. Well, you've got a 27-year time horizon or 30-year time horizon and you're going to be taking a, a small slice of that while compounding what's left. And that's the that's the the um, that's the framework I'd encourage you to have a think about. So, to, in your mind, in your mind's eye, draw yourself a bit of a graph and work on, you know, the, from what you've got now, start at that level, two hundred seventy grand. You say you've got, uh, how much are you going to earn every year on on returns on that, and how much are they going to need to pull out, and then kind of draw that that mental graph from now until whenever it gets to zero, and maybe it never does. If you're really lucky, you invest well, you don't spend too much. Maybe you maybe you pass pass away and there's half a million dollars left. You've built it rather than rather than de- depleted it. Or maybe you haven't. Maybe it goes the other way and you've used it all in five years' time. Any of those is completely fine, by the way. But the answer to that, the shape of that graph, if I'm, if I'm helping you draw some, some mental pictures here, tells you what sort of investing you could or should do. Um, I mentioned the service Everlasting Income before. We have a service that is, is designed specifically to say you never need to touch your shares. You just drag out some income every year. But if that income's not enough for you, then you need to touch those shares. And it's a very different strategy. So I can't give you an easy answer, mate, to what you should do because it really does depend on what your what your cash needs are at which point. Don't think about retirement as the end point. Think about retirement as the point in which your your investing and your portfolio pivots from accumulation to a combination of um, growth in the portfolio and then decline from money being taken out every year to buy the car, do the travel, pay the bills, whatever you want to do. And that kind of should tell you the story of what that graph looks like. Have I done a reasonable job of trying to put that in words, Andrew? Yeah, hard to add anything to that. I mean, you know, obviously the best advantage you have is is time, um, but that's that's something that we don't have much control over. Mm. Um, the second one is the rate of savings, and there's um, there's only a few years left of that in this instance. Um, and then, yeah, it just it just really comes down to to as you say, what what you want to spend. I, I'm I like money. I like nice things, but frankly, my 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 requirements are pretty minimal. If I've got an internet connection and somewhere warm and food in my belly, I'm kind of happy. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I feel yeah. as though you know I, I could I could I could make that money work very hard for a very long time and, and enjoy the lifestyle. But if I was the kind of person that liked fast cars and luxury overseas <laughs> holidays and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, my only real option then is to just like, you know, make some really crazy bets and hope that they pay mm. off because I'm just mm. I'm just not going to be able to make that work without an immense amount of luck. So that's yeah. that is the conundrum and that is that is the compromise. Nice. You you, you said it well. Yeah, I think look, and if the graph doesn't work and if you are kind of half mathematically minded, Steve, you don't have to be particularly mathematically minded, just grab a piece of paper, write down your starting amount of money, write down put 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 10% as an annual return just for the just for the fun of it. In, in the next column and the column after that put down how much money you think you're going to take out every year and then do do a new row for every year so you start with 270 let's say you earn 10% great that's 27 grand and you're going to take out 15 grand pick a number alright minus 15 so 270 plus 27 minus 15 that gives you a ending number then to take that to the next year's starting balance and do a new line for next year and a new line for the year after new line for the year after 
And if you do it in Excel, feel free to do that. If, if you're computer minded, go for it. Um, if you're not, that's who doesn't love a good spreadsheet? Scott. Yeah, well, exactly. You and I, you and I are slightly spreadsheet obsessed. Um, but yeah, that, or, or if you, by the way, get to earn ten percent, that's twenty seven grand. But you want to earn forty grand out a year, then great, do that too. And all of a sudden, you go from two seventy to two fifty seven, and then you can transfer that forward and work out what comes next. But what that'll give you is a sense of how long you think your money can last, uh, and what comes what comes from that. Lastly, I would say uh, I would really suggest you go and see a financial planner or an accountant at this point. Um, just because they'll be able to help you with those maths, particularly with things like some of the tax advantages that might be available. Um, franking credits are wonderful things. You may want to do that because it's useful. As you go into retirement, if that money is in super, for example, the tax circumstances are different. So I, I, I think the financial industry takes too much money from too many people. But in this case, for the structure of your investments and thinking about your post-retirement life, I would absolutely go and see someone get them to talk you through that process. It's probably worth a few bob uh, to you to go and do that and get that bit right. All right, let's yep. move on, mate. As, on the as long as you get, as okay. long as you get a good one, um, yeah. And and the other thing I would say is, I think I think that that process you said is really handy. Just just a quick um, practical note on that. The reality is, is that one of the interesting things things about the market is, is that we often talk about this long term average return of ten percent mm. per mm. year. The market's actually, I think, probably two or three times in history delivered 10% yeah, uh, in, right, in, yeah. in a given year. So what yeah, had actually yeah. happened, it's sort of like <laughs> some years is up 40% and then it's down mm-hmm. 20% and then it's up 3% and then it's down 7%. So it's, yeah. it's there is an average in that and that's just something to be mindful of. That's a good point. So, so, so there, is a, there is a possible future out there where you take 270 grand, it's all in the market because it's based on your calculations and your assumptions and everything Scott talked about. Yeah. And then wham, next year it's worth 100 grand. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And, and that's, yeah. that is, whoa, geez, I really thought I felt, uh, thought this through carefully. It's just, mm-hmm. It just means that I, I think in, particularly in a point where you're not earning income, even though cash is the crappiest return that you can possibly get, there is a little bit of value in having something there that is just there and that you know yeah. it's going to be there no matter what. Um, so yeah, yeah. Just, just an added side note. And I'll add very quickly on top of that, mate. The, the, to the extent you are making your return from dividends rather than capital um, yes. gains, uh, you're also uh, on a much uh, more, much less volatile uh, plane. So if you, if you know, if the market yes. does ten percent, but you're going to take five percent of capital gains and five percent of dividends, then dividends can absolutely fall in bad years. There'll be, you know, last year bank dividends were cut or suspended, so there's it still it still can go badly. Um, but to the extent you can, if you can find you can live on dividends alone, and that capital never needs to be touched, which would be perfect. Then again, it's a very different scenario than if you had to sell down a portion of your holdings every year to, to fund your living expenses. So good good point, mate. Yep. Now, this is where... Um, go on. <laughs> and another thing. Um, just, just a quick <laughs> shout out. There's no affiliation or anything here, but there was a book that really shed a light on that for me years ago. It's probably 15 years ago now called mm-hmm. Motivated Money by Peter That's Thornhill. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. And he just... It's a really underrated book. He's an Aussie. Yep. Um, uh, he, he, he just basically... Ex- explains the return profile that you can expect long-term when you take a sensible af- approach to investing. Mm-hmm. And it just, I don't know what you're saying there just reminded me of that. So yeah, no, um, it's cool check one, it out. Really, really good one. Good idea. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Question from Stewie. Uh, Stuart. Stewie, I should call him Stewie. Stuart. Um, he says, hey, gents, long-time listener and subscriber to Share Advisor and Extreme Opportunities and in the US, Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers. There you go. Out of the gate, I want to first thank you and all of the fool for guiding and educating me on my investing journey so far. I have a lot to learn, but I, I, I'm sure. But in my 12 years today of following and taking recommendations, 
Our family's financial wealth has changed so much for the better. So sincerely, come on, you're making this up now. I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) Once, (laughs) once I can understand, you know. Now now you've got your whole every relative under the sun. It's right. Delete the one that's nice to you if you want. I'm in control. (laughs) No, no, Uh, no, no, no. Just saying. (laughs) Stuart says. So this is interesting, mate. To my question, over the last twelve years or so, we've been fortunate enough to have accumulated wealth to the point where now it makes sense to start moving some of this capital into a discretionary family trust. My question is this. Outside of tax implications and potential wash sale rules, am I interrupting my potential compounding returns if I sell positions in my personal name and then reinvest within a day or two back into the same position at the prevailing price but within our trust? I'm not trying to do short-term gain... uh, Sorry. I'm not trying to gain short-term upside or cost arbitrage. I understand the implications of withdrawing not reinvesting has on compound potential, but if I reinvest, am I any worse off? Your Facebook post today on Charlie Munger's quote regarding the first rule of compounding prompted me to get in touch. Keep up the great work. Thanks again, full on. That's from Stuart. Mm. That, um, that message, you, you know this quote, Andrew, but it's the, uh, the Charlie Munger um, uh, quite about not interrupting compounding. The, the first rule of compounding yeah. is never to let, never to interrupt unnecessarily. Don't which interrupt. Really, exactly, yeah. which, is a, which is a lovely one. So it's a really good question from Stuart. Do you have any thoughts initially? Yeah, well, I, I would actually say you're not really interrupting it in the sense that you're taking it from one structure to another. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a bit of a pause and it's probably a bit of a, a short-term impact in the sense that you'll, you'll cop tax on, on the transfer yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, so there is that one-off hit, but then longer. Obviously, you're doing it for tax reasons, and there are tax advantages having it in a discretionary trust, trust structure. So it's it's a, it's a question. It's I look. I can't do the maths in my head, and I don't know the details. But I would imagine that as long as you operate under you plan, and this is I'm, I'm sure your plan to operate under that structure long term, you'll probably find that it's a net benefit. I mean, b- beyond that one-off tax hit, the, the capital is just being transferred there, and it will continue its path. If, if conceptually you think I just buy every share in the same proportion, you know, you, you continue on your merry way mm. um, just with that one little blip in terms of the tax hit. Is that about right, do you think? Yeah, I think it is. I think that that's the, that is the consideration. Whether you should or not, though, to my mind, is a little bit different. Um, so a couple of things. You're going to pay capital gains tax now um the i don't i don't claim to know the ability of or how you're planning to use the trust so if you're going to pay out trust income when you're earning no other income at all and therefore benefit from being in retirement or other things then there's some there's some real value in that potentially um what i will say though is compare that against depending on how you what stocks you got in your trust or sorry in your personal name now it's highly possible you never need to sell those shares at all ever in your own name so, for example, if I had, I do have shares in Solpats, to use a, a simple example, Washington H. Solpattinson, for those playing along at home. Um, I will probably never sell those shares, hopefully, right? I will probably continue to take income, a dividend income from them, fully franked, in retirement, um, right through until hopefully I cark it and then give the, uh, give the shares to the kids. In that case, interrupting the compounding is effectively a permanent 30% reduction. Let's assume I've, I pay full capital gains tax because I bought them cheap and I sell them expensive. Let's assume that Stuart's done really well. It's um, 25%. If I, if, I, if I have to you know, take my $100 then reinvest 75 of that and spend the rest of my life um, taking dividend income that's fully franked, so largely super tax effective, um, it may actually be worth my while not actually selling those shares and putting them into a trust if I'm never going to recognize the capital gain. So there's, it, it kind of depends on how your portfolio is currently structured. Now, again, yeah, I depends. would, like the last question, I'd go and see a financial advisor, but 
There's absolutely an argument to say building new wealth or when you sell some shares because you don't like him anymore, send that money to the family trust because you're going to reinvest it somewhere else and you might as well put it in the trust to start with. But if I was going to create a tax event that otherwise I could avoid, that's where things might tip back in favour of keeping those shares. Um, so as I said, if you've got an ETF, probably another example, right? If, if I've got an ETF uh, and I'm going to hold that ETF until until you know I, I fall off this multiple coil, again, same thing, right? If I'm getting a three and a half four percent dividend from an ASX 200 ETF for the rest of my life, do I really want to you know sell 100 and buy 75 worth and then permanently have less dividend income for the rest of my life in that one investment because I'm never going to sell it? So I'm not doing it for the purpose of capital growth. If I'm never going to sell it, I'm permanently reducing my dividend flow from that. Now, maybe at some future point, that income is better in a family trust than in your own name. Given franking credits, though, and given the likelihood, even if franking credits are kind of done away with, they'll probably be grandfathered anyway. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know that it's... I don't know the answer, honestly, but I, but I would raise that as an example of where you might possibly not be as better off as you think. If I was going to buy shares now, sell them in three years' time, buy some more, sell them in three years' time, well, enough capital growth... You know, you're probably better with a family trust. Assuming, by the way, you can actually distribute that that cash. And again, I don't know your circumstances. You might have adult kids. You might have a partner who doesn't work. You might decide to stop working tomorrow and live entirely off the income at, at very low marginal rates. So I can understand why a family trust would be worth thinking about. Uh, frankly, I've had the same thoughts myself in terms of what I should do with our money moving forward. Not for, I don't, I don't have all the money in the world just yet, but at some future point as I continue to accumulate, where should it accumulate? Should I sell, rebuy? Should I just start accumulating in a trust? I don't know the answer myself. So it's a, it's a, it's a live question for me. Um, but that, that's one area where I would say the, this construct of your portfolio to which companies you have and what you want to do with them, what you intend to do with them, what you, how you think you'll manage them probably tells you. Uh, but as I said, the other answer might actually just be if you're going to sell them at some point anyway, wait until you sell for its own reasons and then put the money in the family trust rather than liquidating everything just to put it in the trust just for the sake of it right now. But again, absolutely one for the, for the accountant. Nice. Any more thoughts on that, mate? No, no, well said. Um, question from Ajit, mate. I like this one. He just sent me a link. Uh, and the link was to a Sydney Morning Herald article saying, Manchester United in talks to buy Central Coast Mariners and move them. And Ajit just simply says, Hi, Scott. Any thoughts on buying Manchester United Football Club stock? Would you buy shares in a soccer team, Ram? Um, uh, what's the one that's listed here in the ASX? Is it the Brisbane... Um who is it? I can test your rugby league knowledge here. The Brisbane White, Andrew. The Brisbane White. I'm, I'm, s- I'm going to out myself as someone who does not follow league. Um, Bron- Broncos? Sorry, that was, that was, yeah, hey, well done. Yeah. The Brisbane Broncos, well done. Mate, I, I've, I've, I've lived most of my life being able to pretend that I've, I care a little bit about uh, That was cruel sport, of me. I apologise. It uh, I, I just, it's not my bag. But so, they, they, so you can get that on the ASX. Um, yes. And, BBL is and, the code. The Brisbane yeah. Broncos, correct. So I have looked at them just out of bizarre curiosity at one point. So I've not, never looked at Manchester, so maybe it's different. But mm. I just think, wow, what a really, really hard business to run. <laughs> like, is, is, is that franchise yeah. worth something? Yeah, it is. There's, there's value that's there. But, you know, we are talking before about the value of, of growth and how important yeah. that is. And, you know, you just kind of think, oh, the, the, like, even if it's run exceptionally well, kind of think, what's my upside on something that's like that again it depends on you know do they pay a dividend what's that level like i i I don't know so and and i'd always i'd always i'd say this about most uh industries and businesses Mm. as well Mm. it's 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 a question of comparison so Mm. you know is a football team um a sporting club an investment that that is um sensible it's like well yeah in certain contexts 
But it's not the right question. The right question is, is this the kind of the best area that I could invest mm -hmm. my money? And for reasons that I've crept on about long and, and, and hard, <laughs> things like software businesses, uh, I think, are just so much more attractive just because yeah. of the economics yeah. and the way that these things tend to work. It just, why why jump over the 10-foot the bar when there's a one-foot bar to step over? So for me, it's no, but I don't know. Would you? Would you invest? No, I wouldn't. Uh, I had a look at some numbers, mate. The, the, so I went back to Toronto, okay, how long ago... Uh, how, how long did it take to double? Just just by just to do a really quick because I can't you know I could pull up the, the charts and stuff. I just I googled the chart. BBL is the code. I went right. Hang on. The share price is now forty nine cents. It was twenty five cents back in two thousand and six. Uh, so that's a fifteen year double. Uh, so let's divide that into seventy two. That's about three percent a year, <laughs> which tells you everything you need to know. Um, no, more look, than that. It's more than that, but not much more. <laughs> it's still pretty ordinary. Uh, rule 72 3% 315 oh you're right actually 515 it's 5% yeah yeah it'd be 5-6% but you know it's it's not <clears throat> you know it's not super exciting uh, look yes yeah, and they're very it's not, it's not yeah. world beating is it they're very illiquid in this sense in this particular instance as well too so it's very hard yeah, to are. get in and out so yep. I mean it's in a curious fact, I first pull up the chart there'd be not a single share traded today so <laughs> there is I, I will I will add this though there are, I think you know you can be too theoretical and being theoretical yeah. and, and being logical you would say I will always invest where I've got the best risk reward proposition and that's mm. very nerdy and very boring there are people out there who just love Manchester right yeah. and there's people out there that just love no names mentioned Kogan um, and just not to speak ill of the dead there's people out there that are, that are massive fanboys for Apple and Tesla you, you mentioned Kogan they're not me I'm just gonna, uh, I'm just gonna put that out there <laughs> And no, sure, before, you, before you claim next time, oh, you mentioned it six times last week. I'm going to say, hang on. I mentioned it once. You mentioned it the other time. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Once but in two podcasts. I guess, I guess my point is if, if, <laughs> if you get some kind of value in being yep. a part of something, and I, I totally get that, um, yeah. then yeah, why not? You know, I, I, I kind of, it's, it's kind of cool to say, yeah, I'm a massive Manchester fan and actually I'm, I'm, I'm a yeah. part owner of the enterprise yeah, as well. Yeah, That's sure. super cool. And I get that. So for purely logical reasons, no, but for, <laughs> for emotional reasons, yeah. yeah. I, and provided, provided it's not, you know, you might, you might love something that is a, a, an absolute terrible Ponzi scheme of an idea uh, in that instance. So as long as there is some investment merit and you mm -hmm. also get that other, other, other uh, boost from it, then yeah, why not? And that's probably right, mate. Like that, that's probably that's probably a nice way that I was going to put it. I look, I think that's exactly right. Um, but don't buy it for investment reasons, almost certainly. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, completely. Oh, I know that. That's perfect, mate. Here's the here's the here's the one from Philip Page. Apparently, Philip says, "Hi, Scott, Uncle Phil. Good to see Pagey is back in the mix. Really appreciate his view, and of course yours. Surely goes without saying," says Philip Page. Uh, my nice. question is: When Thanks, you're building a port. <laughs> When you're building a portfolio that is mainly growth focused, are there any industries or stocks you would buy in tandem to help offset overall portfolio volatility? I really like this question. Good question. Easy answer. No. <laughs> you wouldn't, you, so there aren't, there aren't any available. You, you couldn't. I'm not. I, I I I don't spend any time thinking up. When I'm looking at an, a potential investment, mm. one of the things that I'm not looking for is how does that offset volatility elsewhere in my portfolio? Yeah, right. Now that's that's not necessarily. I realise that there's there's very plausible reasons as to why you might sort of question that, but <laughs> in my in my personal yeah. context, I'm investing for, with with uh, hopefully decades ahead of me. 
Um, yeah. I don't care about uh, volatility. Oh, let me put it another way. I, I feel as I'm I'm okay at dealing with with volatility. Yeah. So if, if there was like, say, three great investments out there and I could only buy two and two of them were very highly correlated, but I, I objectionly, objectively thought they were the best investments, but I could buy one of those first two and then the other one, knowing that the other, the, the other one's my third favorite by a wide margin, but it would lend overall stability to my portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't go for it because by definition I'm 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 going to get a, a lower longer term return as 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 the way I framed it. Um yeah. so does that make sense because I cause I, I could see a lot of you know financial planners saying what the hell did that guy just say? He's just saying he would intentionally not do something to smooth out his <laughs> overall return. I but but I generally have this view I think most most yeah, no, right. methods out yep. there that that aim to smooth your returns there's a cost. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Challenger before and how they do that with their lifetime yeah. annuities. You 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 pay if you want consistency in your returns that's perfectly understandable. But just understand that there is always a price and a cost that is implicit in that. If you're like me and you're more tolerant of those kinds of things, mm-hmm. then then it's just I'll take the higher return if, if and I'll just accept that the higher quote unquote risk, which which in this context just means volatility. Yep. No. No. Look, I think that's which isn't really Philip's question. So the only thing I will I will say to Philip. Oh, sorry, I might have misunderstood. We should. Sorry. He asked what we okay. would buy if we were, had that aim, and so I don't know. That I have a better answer either, by the way. So I'm going to throw that out there. Philip, here's Andrew is exactly right, um, and this is this is the really difficult part of financial advice, right? I've said this many times in many different forums in many different ways, but effectively the same idea, which is there is there is the the, the mathematically, rationally, logically right advice, and there is the advice that's right for you, and those aren't always the same thing. So I'm exactly yeah. like Andrew. I really, really, really don't care about volatility. Um, do I love it? Not really. But am I prepared to put up with it because I want the maximum long-term return? Absolutely. If you, you know, I think I mentioned this before when we talked about it, Andrew. But the balanced super fund that has shares and property and cash, the cash is a drag on your return over forty years of working. No investor should be in cash ever, ever. ever. I hate, right? I hate that. And they, and they all position themselves as balanced, which any sensible person would go, well, yeah, obviously I want a balanced approach, but. Yeah, you, as I said before, you pay for it with which much much lower returns. You talked right. about the power of compounding before. The difference between just to make up some numbers, the difference between a ten percent annual return and a fifteen percent return doesn't sound like much, but over a twenty year period, it's it's insanely it's massive. Like ten times your money or something, isn't it? Like it's it's, it's something stu- like that. Are stupidly large. Yeah, yeah. Over a long enough time period, you end up yeah. yeah, yeah. One instance, you end up with ten times as much. So it's it's yeah. kind of yeah. like I'll I'll take the, if if my compromise yeah, exactly. is taking some bumps along the way, I will take that. Thank you very much now that being said i understand people who want that what worries me as you say about the financial planning advice people give is they're not explained that this is the impact right now i will also say on behalf of my mother's not here i'm sure she won't mind me saying there were some years when she said hey my superannuation's gone down i thought i was supposed to be investing for my retirement and yet it's gone backwards what's going on and for someone like my mom and luckily i'm around to say mom it's okay cool it's all fine like this is volatile this is what happens but i absolutely get people like you know what i can't stomach declines I don't want to be invested in a in a in an asset class where, I, you know, or, or super fund where I get big declines. If my super fund fell, you know, I mean, shares fell thirty eight percent between February and March last year. If mm. your super was one hundred percent Australian shares and it was representative, your million dollar balance went to six hundred and forty thousand, six hundred twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, it hurts. Like, I I absolutely yeah. get that. I absolutely get that. Scares mm. the hell out of a lot of people, right? So. I don't blame anyone for saying, you know what, I'll take six percent rather than ten percent if I never go backwards because I just can't live. I can't sleep, and I yeah. don't want it. 
totally right. understandable. My, my, my first yeah. response would be, can you try and learn to live with it because it's worth it? But if the answer is not, not going to do it, it's like, cool, no worries. So, so I get Philip's question, which is just, hey, I want growth, but I really can't submit the volatility. How can I offset it in a growth portfolio? Mm. Um, so I, I get it. Philip, I, th- that being said, as I said at the beginning, I don't think you can. If you're, in a gro- if you're a growth investor by definition, a balanced investor, I can tell you how to do it. Even a value investor, I think I can probably tell you how to do it. A growth investor, if you're genuinely investing for growth, but you want to offset the volatility with something, you're kind of, it's, it's anti-growth almost by definition. Yeah, you can have half your portfolio on cash. That'll do your job. Um, you, you can have a portfolio on banks because you know they're boring enough and not going to go anywhere. You can have half your portfolio on miners because they kind of suck half the time and probably not the same half mm. the time that the tech goes up. Um, so there are, there are absolutely answers to that. But if you genuinely want to be a growth investor with a growth portfolio, I don't think I can honestly help you. I don't think there are growth investments that are, cor- are negatively correlated or is it zero correlated? I'm not sure where the maths goes. Negative, yeah, negatively mm. correlated to the extent necessary to... Offset that, and if it were, you wouldn't want it because if your growth's up ten, and you're, you're sorry, if, you, if half the profile's up ten, the other half's down ten. Well, guess what? You just got a zero return. You had a whole lot of heartache to get there. So, yeah. no, I don't think you can. There are ways to reduce volatility in any portfolio, but it ceases being a growth portfolio at that point. You kind of end up with cash and property and something else. And I don't, I don't, I wouldn't recommend that people do that unless they kind of feel like they can't do anything else and they desperately need to. But in that case, you probably need to reassess whether you're genuinely a growth investor or whether you just like the idea of growth, but you're really not that investor. And that's cool, um, but you probably need to, to reassess that first. Is that fair mm. to say, mate? Yeah, it, it reminds me of, and this is outside of the question, but often you hear um, experts sort of saying, oh, when you're building a portfolio, you always want to make sure you have a bit of gold and you want to make sure that you have mm-hmm. exposure to retail and you want to make sure just because just because it sounds smart to be balanced and to be diversified mm-hmm. i just sure buy gold if you've got a good thesis and investment case to be made there and you think there's an attractive opportunity buying yeah, gold yeah. because someone said that it's a good idea to always own a bit of gold and oh maybe it helps offset right, some right. of this it's just i just i just think it's really fuzzy kind of thinking with things and um, the the, the irony of it it all is it just you know what guess what even if you do that you're still going to have volatility Um, sometimes those sine waves can line up Uh, so it's 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 something that hurts you and actually doesn't even work half the time anyway so pass agreed agreed all right uh, let's, we're running out of time, mate, but let's try and get a couple of questions through. Uh, Patrick uh, says, Dear Scott and Andrew, I enjoyed your recent comment about the way the term ETF is being used and the distinction between traditional ETFs that track the market and active ETFs that, are in, a, that in essence are managed funds. Personally, I would like this distinction regulated to help give the layman investors clarity. He asked for thoughts on that. I actually, I decided I would change the term, mate. I call them ETFs, exchange traded mm. index funds, and I'd make that a a separate category and classification so we can be really, really clear about what those are. That, that's just my mm. thought if you have a thought. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I have a real um, tough time of reaching a conclusion on, on regulation in- Yeah, um, I probably wouldn't regulate in, it to be fair. I'd probably just get the industry to adopt a different term. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of examples in the industry at the moment, which there's a whole bunch of really sensible rules that are there. Or let me, let yeah. me put that another way. There's a whole bunch <laughs> of rules that are there for very sensible reasons. Yeah. But, at the, but, you know, cynically over time, they just become box-ticking exercise and a lot of bad behaviour still goes on. <laughs> yes. So would you believe this, mate? I'm actually, I realised the other day going through some, an old filing cabinet, I'm actually qualified as an options um, advisor. So I did this I course know. years and years and years ago. <laughs> yeah. and, and then I remembered at the time, 
I won't say the name of the employee. They just wanted us to all get through it. We all sat in a room. It, like you could, anyone, if you could fog a mirror, you know, and you were able to count past three, <laughs> you're going to pass this. Now, yeah. Yeah. On, on one on one level, this the government introduced regulation here because there was all these cowboys giving really bad advice and said, hey, we should regulate that and we should make sure that people have passed a certain level of competency, which is totally right, by the way. But then the actual mm-hmm. practical execution of that and, and and what it bizarrely does is it just leads to these huge layers of, of <laughs> yeah. you know, bureaucracies and complication. Yeah. It actually stifles a lot of competition and different offerings in, in the market. So yeah. that is way off tangent, but it's just, there's a lot of good intention that's very that's very, very hard to do. And I think... I am, I'm the furthest thing from a libertarian as, as you can get, but I, I do think when it comes to these kinds of things, your, your best bet is to try and inform yourself and those around you as the best protection that there is. Fair enough. All right, he says, I have an ETF-related proposition and would appreciate your thoughts. Here's Patrick's suggestion, business model idea maybe. What if one could simply go to a stock exchange and pick all the shares they want, either at an appropriate proportion or at a prorated amount based on market size, and turn that into an active ETF with a fee managed by a company. For example, he says, I could choose the ASX200 ASX minus the banks. Given the interest in industry and other ETFs, I think this would have broad appeal. Yes, one could buy all the shares they want, but this would be a simple way to say buy 50 shares in a self-created ETF. What are your thoughts on this and how difficult would this be for a company to establish? Loving the podcast and keep up the great work. And that's from Patrick. What do you reckon, mate? Uh, bespoke ETFs? Uh, that is an interesting idea. I've actually there's a little bell ringing in the back of my head that someone is doing this or has done this or is trying mm. to do this or is it just that it, they're sort of like what do the brokers call them um, managed account structures that allow yep, that to do it? Um, yep. Yeah. So look, <clears throat> I, I I think it's okay as a, as a concept, but again, it comes back that if if that is in to be pragmatic, if that's out there someone's doing that as a service and someone's doing that to get a financial return, which is fine. That's how the world works. <laughs> right. But it means, you know, that money, that, that fee is not created out of thin air. It's taken out of what you otherwise would have got yourself. So, um, right. yeah, yeah, you, you, prob- you probably don't need to do that and you'd probably be able to do just fine without it. But if it was there and it was cost effective and someone was happy to provide that service and it made sense to you, then sure, why not? I think that's right. I think, look, if, honestly, Patrick, if it's completely bespoke, the cost of actually doing that, of buying the 123 companies you want out of the out of the 200, someone's going to go and buy those shares in the appropriate proportions. And because you're the only one doing it, there's no real scale benefit. So kind of you've just basically incurred brokerage 123 different companies and then ask somebody to package up and charge you for the privilege. And so quite honestly, it's kind of the same as if you just paid the broker to do it. Now, you get wholesale rates and I'm sure someone could do it more cheaply and I'm sure it's all possible. So I, I mean, I scoff, but I'm sure someone will do it at some point. Um, would it be cheaper than buying the stocks yourself? Probably. But would they then charge you an annual fee you don't have to pay if you buy the stocks yourself? Absolutely. So that, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway shares I bought in 2006 sit there. I haven't paid a cent in brokerage since. Uh, someone was charging me 0.05% to manage that for me over the last you know 15 years. Uh, they would have made some money and, and I would have lost some money. So uh, I, I, I think, uh, look, I get the point and maybe it is even worth doing because if you're smart enough, you can create it. Um, to Andrew's point, Product, you know what you know. What I love about this, mate, is in 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 financial world they call these people product manufacturers, which is exactly what they should be called. Yeah, like, you, that's it, what they are. I, at first, I thought that's a euphemism. Like, no, 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 that's actually what they do. They they literally create fee generating products mm. to then go and sell you. Like, they literally are people who are manufacturing products to find ways to extract money from your back pocket. So, and I like that, Patrick. It's reasonable. Go on, go on. Uh, sorry, I think we get a bit of a lag here. Um, 
I've lost my point. Sorry, mate. <laughs> Go on. I told Bad you connection. not to interrupt me. Bad connection. <laughs> um, anyway, look, yeah, I just think it's a. Um, is it an idea? conceptually? It's an idea. Yes, maybe even with zero brokerage, it becomes more of a useful idea because you can buy fractional shares and create it yourself. Um, I just would be. I, I would speculate, knowing our industry, um, uh, I'll never get a job anywhere else because I've badmouthed almost everybody that we work with, our peers and colleagues in different organisations. Uh, knowing our industry, they'd find a way to screw you out of the, uh, some money to do it, right? And I, I doubt they're going to do it if you, uh, you know, in your interest. Maybe they get to pass on the wholesale cost of these things. You, it probably would be chest registered so you'd save some money there on the transactions. You probably wouldn't pay settlement fees. So maybe it can be done more cheaply. Um, but yeah, some, someone's going to make a dollar and it's not going to be you. Mm. Uh, mate, yep. last question. Uh, Last another, one. another another question um, uh, from Patrick actually I sent a week and a half later that's how far behind we are on the uh, in the queue mate uh, I love the podcast I'm not surprised given that. we've got through like three questions mate I, I, well I, I blame you it makes a lot of sense <laughs> <laughs> here's one about treasury wine estates mate um, I have a question about treasury wine estates I appreciate that one goal as investors is to judge the business and potential future earnings yes however it was recently reported that China would impose a five-year tariff and Treasury's response was that it will need to find new markets. My thesis is that Treasury is a good company and that people like good wine. I don't disagree with that. But I don't feel I'm in a position to judge whether it can find new markets and how the tariff may affect the business. I'm curious in your take and if you were to hold on to existing Treasury shares. He says in brackets, I and Scott own Treasury. That's true. Uh, if you, or if you would buy Treasury wine estates now. Thanks, Patrick. So I do own Treasury shares. I will have my say, but I'll let you go yours first round. What do you what do you reckon? Is it too hard, too spicy? Can you work out the future? Are we barking up the wrong tree? It's hard. Um, I know it, well, there was a great four corners on this actually last week, week before, um, and the, yeah, talking exactly about this problem. Um, it sounds like that's your only option, isn't it? Find a new market, and it sort of rolls off the tongue rather well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it kind of it kind of has this air of oh, where there's this other massive continent we could be selling to. We just haven't, yeah. you know, to yeah. date because you know. It's like, like, I think if there was any other waiting, hungry market that was out there, it would have been exploited to some extent. So for what, for, to what extent there are other markets out there, there are incumbents in those markets mm. that you need to displace. And wine is not a commodity product, but it's not a mile away from a commodity product. And Australia has a great reputation for wines, and we do some of the world's best wines. And Treasury is a great, great um, operator, and they have very successful brands. But I, I personally... I'm not bearish on it per se, mate, but I do put it in the too hard basket. And for that, mm. it's sort of like I'm happy to watch from the sidelines. Yeah, I... So, look, I actually have a different a different thesis to Patrick on Treasury, and it's largely one of... It's a combination of a few things. The, the first thing, of course, is the shares have crashed, right? If, if I got to sell out today at the share price before all the bad news was in, I would have done it in a heartbeat. So, you know, mm. that, that, that's, that's, the, that's the then, right? So is it worth $20 a share now, given the uncertainty and risk? No, absolutely not. But the shares are selling for closer to 10 or 11 at the moment. I haven't looked recently. I, believe it or not, I don't check the shares that regularly. So I'm going to have to type a little decoder now and find out what price these shares are at. Um, I, 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 uh, $10.18, there you go. I check my go. shares way less than people expect I would. Um, <laughs> so, so the question is, now, it's half the price, right? So the, the, the question is, based on the range of possible futures we talked about probabilities earlier is it likely to give us a decent return and my view is a couple of fold the first is the Australian business remains strong and robust uh, the US market was a bit of a basket case and probably is going to bounce back eventually anyway the rest of the world is looking pretty good at $10 if I had to buy all Treasury's business at $10 per share because we are part shareholders we are part owners 
Um, would I feel good about buying $10 based on what sort of future returns I might get over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And my answer right now is yes. And I bought some more shares. I think I bought it at a higher price, maybe 11 bucks, 11 50 something like that. Again, I can't remember exactly. Um, basically, so here's, my, my thesis is twofold. One is I think they will, they will try and find other markets and they'll be moderately successful. But profits will still be less than what they would have been if they were in China. But again, remember, we're paying half the price. So they don't need to be the same as they were to justify the current share price. And I, w- I am expecting that either when, you know, five years is a long time to wait for a lot of people, but, you know, I've, kind of, I've got a decent time horizon. Um, in five years, I think they'll go back into China and do really well. I don't think China's desire to, buy, to drink Australian wines will have moderated once the, uh, the CCP say you can buy them again. People go, oh, great, I love Grange. I love Windsill. You know, I love Henschke. I love, you know, I'll go and buy those Australian wines again because I love them. That'll happen in my view. And when it does, profit goes back up. Now, if I've got to wait five years for the share price to double, well, that's a pretty good return, by the way. Um, mm. So if I get that, then I'll take it. If I, if though, I, so that, that, that's the base case, right? Is eventually, I think demand returns to current, air quotes, normal. And in fact, over that next five years, many, many more Chinese will become much more affluent. And so the market for Australian wines in China will be even bigger in five years than it, than it was today. So you've got an even bigger opportunity now, you've got to wait five years to do it. But again, the share price is halved. So you're being paid to wait, or at least you're getting a discount to wait. And I also think there's a, not, a non-zero chance that somehow, uh, despite the recent protestations of the Australian Prime Minister, um, we'll find a way to resolve this inside the five-year period. And so if it gets resolved in 18 months or two years or two and a half years, then we may well get that opportunity more quickly than we are today. It is a, it is a speculation. It is an intelligent, hopefully, speculation. Um, based on some future level that is just higher t- than today. It's not massively different to Amazon, but in terms of that idea of looking forward and saying what could it be worth at some future point rather than saying it needs to get there in you know, slow, steady, step-by-step, step, you know, straight upward line, no volatility. This is going to be a, you know, an unknown outcome. But if I'm right and it happens, I think there's a decent return there for investors. So that's, that's the view I'm taking, Patrick. It's, it's straight out one of, I think this business is worth more in normal times. And... Normal times are probably somewhere between two and five years away. And if and when those normal times return and the share price normalizes, I think we get a decent return from here. And it's pretty much that simple. Uh, plus, by the way, cash cow business, great brands. Um, you know, uh, did I expect the tariff cuts? No. Or tariff increases? No. Uh, would I have bought it at, you know, because I bought some originally at $14 or something, I think, from memory. Would I bought them then if I knew? No, of course not. But all we can do is play the hand we got now. And I think, I think $10.18 is, a, is a, a good price, an attractive price for a business that has very good long-term potential. If you think about the, think about 15 years time, 20 years time, right? How much Australian wine will be consumed in China? I think like a really, really, really large amount more. And if I'm right, and the Treasury slash Penfolds brands are being sold in there at what will likely be premium prices by then, I I think that's a pretty attractive future. Now, not guaranteed, plenty of risk, plenty of uncertainty, could be just completely wrong. So, Whenever I say these things, I don't want you to say, oh, Scott said it's going to happen, so I'll go and buy it. No, no, I think it might happen. I think it will happen, but I have no ability to predict the future. So don't take anything I say as gospel. It's my view. I own the shares. I bought them on that basis. So I'm, I'm skinning the game. I'm, I'm eating my own cooking, but I'm eating my own cooking knowing that some of it could taste pretty awful and some will taste great and just got to you know, allow for that. Mate, just to go a bit full circle before we wrap it up. Um, so we started the hour talking about um, when to sell. And framed out cases in which you, how you would sort of approach that. I think that actually, just to go full circle, just hearing you talk then, it's kind of like, you know, whether whether you're right or you're wrong, you've got a clearly articulated thesis there. 
So I imagine that for you a sell case would be if whatever happened, you know, China invades Taiwan and relationships just go, you know, crap really quick. Yeah. You know that that at, le at least you know the things that you're looking for to determine whether or not that that perspective is correct. is correct. So it's a really good example. So I would imagine in your situation, if it happened to get to nine eighteen in three months' time for no other reason than general market sentiment, you probably wouldn't be bothered. Um, but but if it went to nine eighteen under a, a situation where just keeping an eye on the news situations with the relations with China, this is all hypothetical, of course. You know, when yeah. when materially self, that's the value. That's the value in sort of having thought Correct. that through. And and yeah, like I, I I wish you every success. As I said, I'm not a I'm not a bear by any stretch. It's mm -hmm. it's um it actually made a lot of sense what you said. So I'm going to add to that, mate. We are we are out of time, but but I like the way you took that. So I'm just going to add a couple of things just to round out that example you used because it's mm -hmm. a great one. If the shares went to eighteen dollars tomorrow, without any change to circumstances, I'd sell. Yeah, right. I think it's worth more at some point, but yeah, not because you're 18. taking profit or something like that, or trying to do anything fancy with timing. It's just sort of like, well, the investment proposition going forward is very different at eighteen than it is at ten. That's and that's exactly why, right? So it's not the fact I've yeah. made eighty percent in profit. It's just yeah, if relevant. the shares were offered to me today, if someone said to me, "Hey, you can buy Treasury eighteen dollars. Do you want to?" I'm like, no, I think they're worth about twenty in in a good time, but mm. the good times could be up to five years away. Do I want to buy at eighteen today? No, I don't. No. So if they got to 80, I'd sell them because I own them and I, I have the opportunity to sell at 80. Not again, really, really clearly. Not I don't, I don't, I'm not taking profits in air quotes. I'm not, you know, looking at the gains. Oh wow, the chart's up. I should take it. Literally, I'm just going to say, you know what? Most of my most of my expected value is already now priced in. I'll take the shares. Thank you very much. It's been great. Yeah. If shares felt, but if and if the, but on the flip side, if the Taiwan, let's say the Chinese do invade Taiwan, God help us. But you know, and the shares fell to three dollars, I'd still hold because the three dollars would more than cover just the Australian value alone. Mm. And so in that case, I don't need China to go back. Now, I would have lost, you know, 70% in, in the meantime, but I can't get that back because I didn't know it was going to happen. Mm. So if all of a sudden, if tomorrow morning they open for trade at three bucks and I don't get sell them at 11, but I can, I can either buy or buy them, at, I can hold them at three or sell them at three, I'll hold them at three because mm. the Australian business is worth more than $3, so I'd hold. Yeah. So again, good, to your, that just, just to your point about the price and the thesis, is really, really important to say, what is the share price now? What am I getting for that share price, both current and future? Um, and you know, the shares are three dollars. I'm going to. I'll probably buy more than three bucks if if China invades Taiwan and the share price is three. I'm going to buy it because the Australian business alone is worth more than three. Mm. If China invades invades Taiwan, the share price is still eleven. I'd probably sell again yeah. for the same reasons because the chance of me getting full value eventually is probably much reduced. So I'll happily take the money off the table. So it really does matter what circumstances change and what price you're being offered. Yeah, and just to really flog a dead horse here, it's just, and what doesn't matter is whether or not you're down forty percent or up thirty. Mm -hmm. that, that's what doesn't matter under that decision to whether to sell. Well, it is, you know, if I blinked into existence today, would I buy? And if if you would, then you should still keep holding. Horse appropriately flogged. We've done well. Yep. <laughs> jump onto strawman.com to find more from Andrew. And if you're on the socials, jump on Twitter. A sage underscore Simeon is Andrew's Twitter handle, or Strawman Invest. You'll find Andrew in one of those two places. If you want to grab me on Twitter, jump on to at TMF Scott P. TMF being the Motley Fool, of course, at TMF Scott P. Or the Motley Fool AU. Those same two handles will work for you on Instagram. TMF Scott P and the Motley Fool AU. Or if you're on Facebook, and we all are, the Motley Fool Australia is our company page and Scott Phillips Money is my professional page. Um, don't try to me as a friend. It's not cool. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to accept it, but you know, it's all right. <laughs> Scott Phillips Money instead. Uh, go there and uh, follow me and I'll uh, have a chat with you there. I post some stuff in different places. So jump on all those if you want. If you want to get in touch with us too for the mailbag, just to be really clear, you can use any of those places. Um, 
Twitter direct message is easiest probably. Maybe Facebook direct message if you want. Anything's fine, but those ones work. Also, you can email us, info at fool.com.au and you can get in touch with us there. Uh, in the meantime, do make sure you do subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. Write it on your body, tattoo it across your face. Um, you know, give your friends a free subscription for Christmas or something. <laughs> anyway, make sure you check out Motley for Money and help them find it as well. Please leave us a rating and a review, whether you're on iTunes, Android, or the new listener app from Southern Cross, Australia. In the meantime, that's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.